think about the profound influence of the Bible on the world, the way that it has shaped our culture, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's probably a good idea that you know at least what it says. It's going to be about us taking and reading the Bible. Welcome back to the Take and Read podcast. Pastor Chad here, and today I am flying solo. So who we'll see what happens. One of the things that I love about having guests on, and the reason why that that format works best for me is because I am a verbal processor. And so I love the way that I get to interact with various guests and the things that they see, and it just sparks ideas in me, and and then we're off and running. But uh, I'm going to try my best uh, to engage with you on this podcast and just try to process out loud uh, the thoughts that I have, the questions that I have, the yeah, and see, again, this is my, I think, only my second time flying solo like this, and so uh, we're going to give it a shot. I'm so grateful that you joined us. I don't know how you came about the Take and Read podcast, but if this is your first episode, I'm so glad to have you here. Uh, We are making our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The reason some people wonder why I chose the Gospel of Mark to start with, and I just felt like it's the earliest known account of the life and ministry of Jesus that we have. So I thought, what better place to start with than the first one? And so this Gospel of Mark, written by John Mark, who was a companion of the Apostle Peter, and, uh, and so he, he took down the teaching of Peter as it, he was an eyewitness of those, of uh, Peter being an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus and one of his early disciples called um, at the fishing boat uh, with his brother Andrew. And so they accompanied Jesus, and this this is understood to be uh, traditionally as the collection of Peter's teaching, uh, and so it's a good place to start, and and what we found as we've made our way through this, this is episode 67, and we're still not through the Gospel of Mark, so we've, we've gotten together on this podcast uh, for over a year now, and we're still making our way ever so slowly through the Gospel of Mark, and it's it's on purpose. Uh, we're taking our time. We're chewing on every nuance that we can find here and just processing it. And And what you've stumbled upon, if you're new to the podcast, is I, uh, Pastor Chad, a- am a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, when I was uh, a young guy growing up in Kalispell, Montana, I grew up uh, in a in a nominal Christian home. Uh, we, we attended uh, services every once in a while. Uh, my mom saw to it that we learned the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we would attend every once in a while uh, our local church. But it wasn't until, um, and, and my conversion experience was kind of in, in stages. Um, I remember going to a youth camp, uh, and it was not a Christian youth camp, but it was in seventh grade, and it was for kind of a student council leadership event. And I went to this camp as a, a young seventh grader, just graduating, having graduated seventh grade and moving into eighth grade. And the cabin counselor at this camp, uh, probably at great risk, because this was a, a, a public school camp and not a Christian camp, uh, he took it upon himself and was burdened to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with everyone in his cabin. And he was a high school student. And he was bold, and he shared the gospel. And I remember (laughs) 
that that night, not fully sure kind of how it all worked, I I understood that hell was a real place, and that's not a place that I wanted to go. And so I remember kind of lying in my bunk and praying the prayer that he told me to pray, and I, I prayed it over and over and again, emphasizing different words at different times because I just I wasn't sure if I got it right. And but that at that time in my life, I was not interested in a relationship with Jesus, nor did I understand such a thing. I I simply had heard that this there's a place called hell after you die. And it sounds absolutely horrific, and I don't want to go there. And this guy's telling me that if I pray this prayer, then I get out of hell. And so at that point, it was basically fire insurance. I, I didn't want to go to that that crazy place that he had described, and if I just said these words, then I'd be out of that. So I, I prayed the prayer, and there was zero change in my life at that moment. No change. I, I went through the motions. I was completely unaware of really who Jesus is or any anything about my actual life and wasn't even sure that I was convinced about my own brokenness and my own sin. So I went about living my life uh, as I had before and just kind of felt in, in the back of my mind that I'd kind of covered my bases and that if this whole Bible thing was true, that Jesus kind of paid for all my sins. That's great. So that means I can just go on living how I want to. And there's one uh, Christian pastor uh, and theologian uh, from Germany uh, back in the day named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he coined a phrase called cheap grace. And that means believing in the Lord Jesus in a way that you presume upon the Lord's kindness shown through Christ, and you just kind of live however you want to, and just bank on the fact that God's got you covered. And Paul talks about that as well, that uh, in in the book of Romans, he talks about um, presuming upon God's kindness and mercy, and that it ought to cause us to be sobered to the reality of our brokenness in our life and and turn away from that, not uh, banking on it and, and just indulging in the flesh and our sin and this life. And, and just trusting that God's got it covered because that actually indicates that there's not a true conversion that's happened. And so for me, I was living that way. I was living kind of just however I wanted to. And it wasn't until uh, a few years later that I had gotten to know this group of believers by going to a, a church youth group. And one night uh, spent with them, I was was kind of in a meeting with them and wrestling with this whole God thing and whether or not I really believed in it. And, and it had been a few years since that camp experience. And here I find myself wrestling with it and, and having a, a, a youth pastor uh, take, take an interest in me. And one night approaches me and says, hey, I want to talk to you about something. Uh, and I, at first I thought maybe I was in trouble, but he sat down and began to explain to me who Jesus is and didn't start with with my sin and, and didn't start at other places that maybe had been starting points earlier, but he addressed the person of Jesus Christ. And that... In that moment, it was like I could see it for 
for what it was. I could see Jesus for who he was, and I was immediately aware of my disparity, that I was, my life did not warrant any bit of God's love. And I was fully aware of just how broken I was and knew God was real, but for the first time believed that Jesus Christ did actually live, that he did actually die a physical death for me, and that he physically, bodily rose from the dead, and that he lives to this day, seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he is interceding on my behalf, and that by placing my faith and trust in him and what he accomplished on my behalf, there's nothing that I can do for it. Putting that confidence in him and saying, I do believe, I do trust you, and I need you. And that's a moment from which I've never recovered. I've never recovered from that encounter with the Lord. And and from that started me on this journey of following him. And so that's a journey that we're taking through the gospel of Mark. And so if you're joining us, uh, man, so glad to have you. Because I, I have encountered the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, and I've never recovered from that. I am, I am broken and in need of his mercy and his grace, and I'm so grateful that his mercies are new every day, that he never runs out of his ability to love me because of what Christ has done. And there's nothing that I can do that earns more of his love or his favor because Christ he loves me perfectly because of what Christ has done. Now, it doesn't give me any desire or warrant to then go and live however I wanted to like I did originally. But in fact, because of a transformed heart and because his spirit now lives in me, I desire to follow him. I desire to, to know his heart, to allow him to speak to me. And so that's what happens as I encounter his word. And that same thing awaits all who place their faith in Christ Jesus, because in him is life, eternal life, abundant life, and it's a life that can be found nowhere else. There's nowhere else we can look for life or satisfaction or fulfillment or contentment. And so we take this journey and we read through the Gospel of Mark and we, we get a firsthand look at how Jesus was living how he was ministering to people. And so some of the things that we see that come out in this gospel and what we've seen so far is that Jesus is demonstrating very clearly that he has authority over all things. And when I mean when I say all things, he he demonstrates throughout the gospel that he has authority over all things physical, the physical universe. We see that as he heals diseases and he drives out sicknesses, as he calms storms, as he heals close and and from afar, but he has absolute authority over the physical realm. He also demonstrates that he has authority in the spiritual realm. So he's, he's dealing with the demonic, the fallen angels that are trying to oppose him. And he's dealing with them and every time he makes a... a he gives a commandment towards them, they obey immediately. 
they are absolutely 100% immediately responsive to any command that he gives them. And he drives out demons and he casts out demons and they acknowledge his absolute 100% authority. And so we're seeing him demonstrate this authority over and over again. We're also seeing a demonstration of the kingdom of God that has arrived in its king, Jesus. And what life is like in that kingdom because he goes around and he makes broken things whole again. He makes dead things alive again. This is what life is like in his kingdom. He is demonstrating what God's love and kingdom is like, what the culture of his kingdom is like. And it's a, it's a culture of love and of life, that he is love and he is perfect love. And when we are recipients of his love, it comes into our hearts and it, then it spills over into the lives of other people. And he's also a God of life, of flourishing. And just think about from the beginning of time when he creates Adam and Eve, when he puts humanity into existence, he puts them in a garden. And it says in Genesis chapter 1 that he made us in his image and his likeness, and therefore we image God. We are in his likeness. We bear his resemblance as uh, his creation and as as creators in this that we're called to to help cultivate that life-giving uh, recreation that happens uh, in the garden. And so we're, we're put there to cultivate. And so we're put in a garden, it says in chapter 2 of Genesis, to work the garden, to tend it. Now, this is before sin entered the world. So Adam and Eve are placed in a garden to, to take care of it and to cause and to help perpetuate the conditions of flourishing for the animals that are there and the plants that are there. And you see this flourishing happen. And so then Genesis 3 comes along and all of a sudden sin enters the world. And so now death has now entered the world. And that's the curse, right? That there's now going to be challenges in this call to flourishing. And you notice that how the curse plays out for, for Eve, it's pain and childbearing. Well, that, that's related to when, when God tells Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply, to rule and subdue. That means to make more image bearers, more, more humans that bear God's image. To be fruitful in that way is to flourish, to cause more image bearers. And then he puts them in the garden to work it. Well, what's the curse for Adam? Adam has difficulty. It says that his, the result of the curse uh, for him is that he will have pain, great pain and labor in cultivating the earth and getting things and working the earth to cause things to grow. And so this curse affects both aspects of being fruitful and multiplying. That is, as humans multiply on the earth, there's going to be pain associated with that now. It's going to be challenging. And also to work the garden, to cause things to grow, to steward creation in a way that it flourishes, well, that's also going to be difficult and challenging because of sin. And so when we see and, and read the Old Testament and all throughout, it's, it's a story after story of God's people trying to find life and flourishing on their own or outside of God. And over and over again, him calling them back, restoring them, giving them ways in which they can deal with their sin and their brokenness and be restored in relationship to him. But all of that is just a foreshadowing of what will ultimately come in Jesus Christ. And so what we read in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus, who is God in the flesh, God, the God of the universe, takes on human form, is born as a baby, 
and it comes into the earth. And now we see not only a picture of what God is like, but in the face of Jesus Christ, we see what humans were always meant to be like. So we see faithful, obedient humans and what they're supposed to be like when we look at Jesus, that this is what faithful, image-bearing obedience to God the Father looks like, and it causes life, and it spreads love. And so that's what we've seen on display throughout the Gospel, Mark. Uh, We just finished up chapter 13, and in chapter 13, there's been a lot of dialogue around the the end of the age and kind of when Jesus might come back, and that came out of some conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. One disciple had commented on the the temple and the stones and just the grandeur of it all as they were exiting. And he, uh, Jesus makes a comment that eventually there's going to be a day when none of this is here and it's no stone left on top of another and it's all going to be destroyed. And so later they're sitting across from the temple and on a mount and looking at it and what the disciples are like, hey, so, so you mentioned that thing about the temple and everything being destroyed. When's that going to happen? And he says, you know what? And he kind of walks them through the signs and and things that might happen, but that's not quite the end yet. And then that people are going to come along claiming to be him, return, but that, that's not time yet. And, and there's going to be a day when um, bad things are happening and people are going to have to scatter and they're, they're going to need to get out of town and get to the high place. And that's still not the time. Um, these are just simply the birth pains, like the, the beginnings, but the end won't be yet. But the time and the day and the hour, he said, no one can know. Not even he, the son, knows when that's going to happen or the angels. But we are called to be ready when it does happen and that he is going to come back and he's going to return and he's going to set all things to right. And every day of his delay is a day in which we have an opportunity to spread the good news of who he is and how much he loves us. So that's what we've covered in chapter 13. And so here we go. We jump into chapter 14. And I'm literally going to read two verses. I'm not going to go very far. I'm reading out of the ESV, and I prayed before I got on this podcast, but I will pray again. Father, please give us wisdom and guidance. Help us to see and understand what you have for us in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so here we are, Mark chapter 14. Get ready for it. We're only gonna read two verses. All right. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. We're going to stop there because I think there's some historical context that's helpful. So we know that the time frame that this is uh, two days before the Passover. So here we are in Jerusalem. We know that he's been in and out of the temple a few times, but he's in Jerusalem. And during this time, there would have been pilgrimage by many Jews returning to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Passover is this uh, feast that was instituted by God for his people to remember back when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, that they, uh, as part of their release and as Moses was getting ready to lead them, as God was going to lead them out of slavery and bondage, 
that there were multiple plagues that happened, and then at one point there was the Passover where God gave very specific directions to his people that they were to sacrifice a lamb that was pure and spotless to place its blood over the doorpost and that the Spirit of God would come through Egypt and pass over every doorway or household that had the blood of the lamb over it. And everyone else, the firstborn son, would be taken. And so the Jews celebrate that. And the fascinating thing about that is that is also a foreshadowing of Jesus, that the blood, the pure spotless blood of the lamb, marking households. So anyone who has been marked by the blood of the lamb is no longer going to be a recipient of God's wrath because Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has absorbed the wrath that is deserving of all those that are in sin and rebelling against God. And so those that have the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, his his blood over them, they don't have to worry about the wrath of God. And so it's it's very, the timing is very pertinent to this because we're now two days before the Passover celebrated, and we're getting very, very close to the moment in which Jesus himself will be crucified, sacrificed, and shed his blood. Man, good stuff. So that's two days before, and here we see uh, the chief priests and the scribes. So here we have the religious authorities of the Jewish community are worried because here we or two days beforehand, and Jesus has, has caused enough of uh, uh, an uproar already. He's gone into the temple, he is taught publicly, and he's amassed this crowd of people that are now seeming to be very favorable to him. And hearing his teaching, he's been very um, honest about the authority of of the scribes, of the the chief priests, and all of the religious authorities of the day, he has been very critical of them, in front of them, in front of crowds. So there's been this public opposition to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're fed up with it. They're like, we got it, we got to get rid of this guy. This guy is messing up our deal. So right away you see that they are they've now had it. They're not going to put up with it anymore. They are trying to figure out a way to get rid of him, to kill him. But they're so they're so concerned about themselves. They're so concerned about not messing up the status quo of their own authority and their own priority in the community that they don't want to do it now and they've got to figure out a way to do it in stealth because they don't want to they don't want to cause an uproar. Um, and they've determined they can't do it during the feast lest there be an uproar from the people. Now, not during the time of, of this, when this passage took place, but uh, several years later, there's a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, and he records that uh, there was, there was a, an episode during one Passover event where there were about 30,000 people gathered in Jerusalem for the Passover and there had been a riot or an uproar that had caused um, thousands of people to die by being trampled to death. And so this concern is a very real concern. 
And and so it, it's something that they're very aware that there's such a large amount of people that have gathered in the city for the celebration that, man, an uproar could trigger all kinds of hysteria and rioting, and they cannot afford that. In fact, it could be detrimental to their health. If this uproar is one of opposition towards these chief uh, priests and scribes who are the ones responsible for killing Jesus, well, then they'll be public enemy number one, and the court of public opinion in Jerusalem will be set against them, and then they'll lose everything. So they've got this threat of, okay, Jesus is upsetting our our um, fragile position. Now, they wouldn't say it's fragile, but it's clearly fragile because the, the amount of time that Jesus confronts them and demonstrates, even when they're trying to test him, and yet he demonstrates how, how uh, unaware or how how much they lack authority, and he demonstrates that and just puts that on public display every time he interacts with them. So their their authority is very fragile, yet they're still trying to manipulate and manage this thing so that they can hang on to it. And so they, they've got this issue with, we've got to get rid of Jesus because he's upsetting our situation, and yet we can't do it in a way that would be expedient right now because we're now in this this time period where there, all these people have gathered, and it's during the Feast of Passover, and it could cause a riot, which would also potentially threaten our position. So they're stuck, which when you stand back and you look at the sovereignty of God in this situation, where the perfect timing, I mean, again, all throughout the Gospel of Mark, there's been time after time where he has said, not yet, not yet, or he tells people, go and tell no one. And we've talked about that before on this podcast that it kind of understood as the messianic secret where there are times when he performs miracles and he tells people to go and tell no one. And it's like, well, why, why would he want to keep this quiet? And all throughout, there's been this sense in which he has identified there is a perfect timeline to how this is going to play out and how it needs to play out. Uh, that it, it can't be it can't be premature and it can't be late. It's going to be right on time. And so there seems to be that we we start to understand the the timing is perfect because their desire to get rid of him to kill him they're in a they're in a tight spot because they can't do it in a way that they would like to because the crowds are there now and so they're stuck. They they cannot figure out a way to do this. And they can't do it at this time, and they've got to do it in stealth. And so there's this interesting uh, conundrum, and not to not a, to be a spoiler, but eventually they're going to find a way, and it's they're going to be able to navigate this. But at this moment, what you see on display, I think, is is just again the the multiple times that he has spoken and taught through parables, the demonstration of his power and authority through miracles. You know, the feeding of the 5,000, the healing of people and walking on water, and, and all these times in which he's demonstrating who he is. And he's demonstrating it at times in front of multitudes. He's teaching as one who has authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. And so it's, there's something different about him. And yet the chief priests and the scribes, their hearts are so hardened that they do not want to admit or or confess 
that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so they, they can't see it. They're blind. They just are so concerned with themselves that they can't see that, man, the true salvation awaits them. And I, I just find that to be interesting, that sometimes we get so concerned with ourselves and we don't want to do it God's way and we have another outcome that we would prefer that we don't actually believe God's outcome is for our best. Because if we really knew how much he loves us, that he actually loves us more than we love ourselves, that his outcome would always be the best thing for us. And sometimes we're not convinced of that. And I can even speak in my for myself that, man, I, I have a preferred outcome of, of different things and, and a way that I would want things to happen. And and it's even like ultimately selfish and self-focused. And so I can relate. I can relate to the chief priests and the scribes. And I mean, it's easy to throw them under the bus, but man, I'm just as broken as they uh, were. And you think about it too, <laughs> that if you were really ultimately like just the ultimately selfish, well, then you would want the salvation that comes in Christ because if you really knew what it was, you would want nothing else and you would settle for nothing less than the best for yourself. And that's what it is. And so it's just this fascinating how how blind our hearts can be sometimes to what truly is best. And if we really wanted the best for ourselves, well, then we would fall on our faces before Jesus and know that that is the best. So just a, an interesting um episode here in in the gospel of mark. Uh yeah, so some uh, some things that as I look at this passage, I want to wrestle with okay, the timing of things. It's he's very specific to give us that it's 2 days before the Passover uh and the feast of unleavened bread which would kind of accompany the Passover. Uh the p- key players here would be uh the chief priests and the scribes and they're kind of having this conversation uh among themselves about what to do. And, and it's on display that they were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. However, they said not during the, the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And what's implied in that is that an uproar from the people would be extremely negative for them. Maybe their concern was for the broader population, uh, but it seems like what is consistent throughout is their constant um, focus on themselves and their own preservation. And that seems to be on display here again. So I think a takeaway from this passage is is not to immediately throw them under the bus, but try to be real and honest with ourselves that is there a component of our own hearts that we can that resonates with the chief priests and the scribes that that we we sometimes have this preferred outcome that is ultimately going to lead not to us being closer to Christ, but would would cause us to totally miss him altogether and and to be very um, aware of our own brokenness and our own fallenness and that ultimately what we see on display here in the Gospel of Mark is a demonstration that Christ is, in fact, the king, that he has ultimate authority, but his kingship is unlike any other kingship that he is benevolent and loving and generous and he is the perfect king and he's perfectly good.
And and that is something that is missed, especially by the scribes and the Pharisees um, and the chief priests here, that they they want to get rid of him, that he is a nuisance and that he's disrupting everything. And so as we as we step back and we consider this passage, I think it's important to wrestle with, like I said, in what ways can we relate in our when we're really honest with ourselves, what ways can we relate to the brokenness we see in the heart of the chief priest and the and the scribes? Are there ways in which we're searching for our own preferred outcome over what God's ultimate good outcome is for us? Maybe you're somebody who you are looking at this text and you're listening to this podcast and you're like, I just think it's all made up. Or I think it's historical events, but I don't know about this Jesus guy. And here's what I would say, that so often we miss Jesus for who he really is and we get caught up in the religion and the religious people. And my challenge to you is take a look Look full into his wonderful face as you see him time and again throughout the New Testament. Read Jesus. Read about him. Observe his teaching. Observe the way that he lived his life on this earth. Saying the things that he said, doing the things that he did, and look and see that it all has to do with life. Abundant life. And that's what he promises us. That for each and every one of us, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ uh, is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. And so be encouraged today that although we may find elements of our heart, even today, even as followers of Christ, that there are elements of our heart where we, like the, the chief priests and the scribes, want our own own outcome or maybe want to dismiss Jesus. And, and I pray it never so. But let us be sobered by what we see in the life of the chief priests and the Pharisees and recognize that we were once like them, enemies of Christ, wanted nothing to do with him, but the grace of God has arrived. And like for me, my first encounter with the truth of of God, I didn't want anything to do with Jesus. I just wanted, I wanted out of hell, and so I didn't, I didn't have any kind of encounter with Jesus or relationship with Him to speak of. I just wanted to avoid that 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 terrible place that was described to me, known as hell. And just like the chief priests and the scribes in this passage. They, they're just looking out for themselves. They're looking out for number one. That's me, right? Themselves. And I was in the same boat. But when I looked and I, when God revealed Jesus Christ to me and I looked into his face, well, then, then the change came. And so I challenge all of you listening to this podcast, if you're a believer, recount and recall that moment when you realize Jesus is who he says he is, when you've met him for the first time. And as you're reminded of that encounter, let it be fuel for your day of just who you are in Christ. Regardless of whatever you're facing, what challenges are, are present today, you're redeemed 
by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ himself. And he delights in you. And whatever he says of you is true. And that God loves you because of Christ. And you don't have to do anything to earn more of his love or his favor. But he loves you perfectly because of what Jesus has done for you. And let that be an encouragement and a comfort to you today. For those of you still wrestling with this truth, continue to wrestle. But don't miss Jesus. Don't get caught up in all the religion and don't even get caught up with the ways that Christians fight or disagree or maybe even treat you poorly. But look at Jesus and see what you find there. So I encourage you to go take and read the Word of God. Thank you so much to those who continue to support the podcast, leave comments, uh, like, subscribe, do all the stuff you're supposed to do. And I appreciate those who uh, have taken advantage of and, and blessed me with uh, coffee. Uh, there's an opportunity. I, I, I'm trying this thing out where you can click a link and you can buy me a cup of coffee. And I'm so blessed by those that have done it so far, so encouraged. And so thank you so much for checking out this podcast, the Take and Read podcast, and this episode. And again, I hope you are encouraged to go take and read the Word of God. Blessings. Blessings.